Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. Good morning. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird, and we're live streaming from the studio at Jolt Radio in Miami, Florida. First off, a big thank you to those of you who dropped by the studio for Breakfast and the Beat on November 4th. We brought you a live show that day that you can listen to on SoundCloud or on FreshArtInternational.com. We loved introducing you to a few of the Miami artists who are sharing their work in our little pop-up exhibition to help us raise money to keep bringing you the art beat, the sounds of contemporary art, design, and film from Miami and the world. There is still affordable art available. So why not collect some before the prices go up for Miami Art Week? See for yourself. Go to our website and click on Giving and Collecting Opportunities. We have some great thank you gifts, too, for those who would just like to donate. Museum memberships to the Bass, the Wolfsonian, and Paris Art Museum. Passes to two art fairs, Untitled and Prism. And passes to the Deering Estate. Now for today's Fresh Art International show... I am thrilled to bring you conversations about downtown Miami, Florida, as a site of creativity, a place where cultural interventions have been happening for more than 2,000 years. I'm excited to share with you two of these stories for part one and two of the show, and I captured them in field recordings over the past year right here in Miami. Our three-part adventure begins in prehistoric times, a walking tour in downtown Miami. Next, you're going to hear about a project that transformed three city blocks of parking on Biscayne Boulevard and turned it into a community gathering place. Then you're going to meet Rina Carvajal, the executive director and chief curator of the Museum of Art and Design at Miami-Dade College. The museum is located in the historic Freedom Tower, and has currently taken on a nomadic practice, which Rena will be here to tell you about this morning. So let's get started with the first field recording. On September 24, 2016, I made my way to, on the Metro Mover. That's a free elevated train that loops around downtown to a small green space at the edge of the Miami River. I was there to meet local artist-writers Frankie Cruz and Nathaniel Sandler at a 2,000-year-old site known as the Miami Circle. These two were my guides for an intimate walking tour that you're about to hear. The first sound is drumming. That's Ishmael Bermudez, a Native American also known as Golden Eagle. He's performing a ceremony at the Well of Ancient Mysteries, the sacred site where he lives at the heart of the Miami Business District. You'll meet Ishmael at the second stop on this tour. But I have a shout-out to Dara Friedman, Miami-based artist, who recorded Ishmael's story in 2014. You can explore her work in an amazing mid-career survey at the Paris Art Museum in Miami right now. And they've just told me yesterday that in early 2018, the museum will present a special program about the film that Dara made in this sacred space. Let's listen. much right now at all but this was a spot where in 1998 they took down these apartment buildings that were here and excavated and found something that looked like uh, four man-made holes about this big square foot away from each other they had an expert say that it was probably connected to a whole entire there was a whole circle so they found four holes that were in this semi-circle shape they excavated everything to find 
that there was a perfect circle here. Um, through carbon dating, does anybody know what carbon dating is? No? Okay, enough. They, they measure the decay of radioactive carbon in, old, in fossils and different things like uh, charcoal pieces that they found in the holes here. And the decay happens constantly for like about 500,000 500, years of 500,000 years is a decay. So that's how they know based on the measurement of the decay, whether how, how old things are. So they found some charcoal here that was like 750 BC. So actually they found charcoal here that's older than the circles themselves. The circle is probably like 2,000 years old. Before that, and the circle has been known to be, there were holes for these posts. So if you can imagine these wooden posts, these holes here, that probably went up into a TP. I put a video like this on the event page that they showed what they thought it was and it went up this way and had a wall so they had a, a hole in the sky where they would have a fire in the middle and it was probably some form of like a town hall which also possibly doubled as like a spiritual place like a church or a temple where they would hold like uh, sacred ceremonies and meetings and leaders would get together and talk and they think this because they found different things here like uh, seal bones I think it's like a musk seal. I have my notes here. Which is extinct now, but those, that creature was known to be held for the elite only to eat. So that's why they think that's, that's here. They also found in the holes these axe heads that were never used, made from a material only found in Georgia, which means those axe heads must have had, would have had to have traveled 1,000 miles from Georgia to here. And they were unused, so they believe that they were placed there as like a part of the sacred ritual or service. All those indicators let the, let the archaeologists know that this was like a sacred ceremonial site. There was a huge sit-in and it took a lot of effort through the courts and protests and doing like guerrilla video surveillance they were able to like protect this circle. And it was bought for like 26 million by Florida to, to, to so we can stand here and talk about it now. Across the street, where this building is going up now, is where the Tequesta would have lived, where, where most of the people would have lived. And when they did this, this excavation, which was around 2012, a couple years ago, um, they found tons of these post holes, which is indi indicative of the fact that that's where most of the people would have lived. And that only proves their point that this, across the river, was a sort of sacred spot. Over there, they found the foundation of the Royal Palm Hotel, which Flagler built when he first came here. So they were able to pinpoint that to the same place. So it really shows you that this is the cradle of Miami civilization, where Miami started. And even when the white man came, uh, that's where they wanted to build as well. I was here when they saved it. It was 1999, and there's this whole big thing with the turning of the century. So that's where uh, I think it helped because there's a lot of um, concern about, you know, whether this was like an alien side and then the coincidence of the change. And then there was a man, um, Art Bell, who had a, like a radio show in the middle of the night and he talked a lot about aliens, but he was like popular nationally. And he came to Miami and decided that this may have some implications with aliens. So he started, you know, talking about that and then the whole like world learned about it and I think that really helped save it because if it had just been a Miami thing I don't think we, we ever would have, have mobilized yeah yeah, yeah. yeah you're right. I'm glad you brought that up I'm <laughs> also excited to bring you to my next spot or the next spot which is uh, Ishmael's house he's a man who's been uh, excavating his yard since he was 11 years old so you guys ready we leave the Miami Circle site and walk up Brickell Avenue turning the corner across from a metro rail station to enter a shady oasis that's hiding in plain sight, in the shadow of high-rise residences that look down on the property. This is where Native American Ishmael Bermudez lives, one of downtown Miami's longest standing residents. Ishmael greets us at the garden gate. Welcome, this is Ishmael. Frankie Cruz and Nathaniel Sandler have led us here to this curious spot, known as the Well of Ancient Mysteries. Over the past 50 years, 
Ishmael has personally removed all traces of soil, sand, and sediment from the ground around his house. The amateur archaeologist has fully exposed all 5,000 square feet of the property's prehistoric bedrock. Ishmael performs a protective ritual with each visitor. One by one, we stand still with arms outstretched as he chants and immerses us in the aura of burning white sage. Only then are we allowed to step into the rocky moonscape that surrounds his home. A cultural and environmental guardian, Ishmael is determined to assure that the well of ancient mysteries is left untouched by downtown developers. He's committed not only to preserving a sacred site to the Tequesta tribe, but also to protecting the pure source of water that he's found here. There's a natural spring that comes up from the aquifer right around here. Yeah, we can drink it. I recommend you drink it. Yeah, it's probably, it's probably the cleanest water in all of Miami. It's coming directly from the source. Here, we're below sea level. Man came back later and found this place because of the, the food that was here was abundance. Buffalo, bear, deer, that direction, manatees across the street, and all the fish you can eat 300 yards away from here. They live inside the hammock and also on the, on the waterfront, on the river, and also all the way down the Keys on Islands, they make uh, mounds, and on top of the mound, they made the chicky. Okay? After the Europeans came here, Maybe 50 to 80 years after that, all that disappeared. This is the oldest open prehistoric site or evidence of prehistoric humans living here. Uh, the Chiqui Holes, on the, this is the same as in Miami Circle, no different. Chiqui Hole, they were made with shell like this. Okay? These are shell from that period. When they come and do ceremony here in the old days, like we did today, I mean, Trunks and everything. These are tools. This is about the same size as this one, see? So they worked it. When they had ceremonies here, they blow the horn, the four directions. They were here and they left when they got chased out. They got chased, the last ones they got chased out with the Seminoles because they lived here too. And when I started, I started looking for the Seminoles' remains back in 1961. This is Fresh Art International. We just 
took you on a tour of two prehistoric sites in downtown Miami, the Miami Circle and the Well of Ancient Mysteries. Just a little point of fact there, a few years ago, Ishmael Bermudez, guardian of the well, turned down offers of up to $1.8 million to sell the plot of land he lives on, but he's committed to preserving it. Fast forward to January 2017, when a contemporary cultural phenomenon popped up in downtown Miami, the blocks between 1st and 3rd on Biscayne Boulevard became Biscayne Green, a temporary public space intervention that showcased a reimagined stretch of the boulevard. Miami's Downtown Development Authority led that project and transformed that space, turning it into a community gathering place. And to capture the conversation that you're going to hear next, I rode the Metro Mover again, and this time got off at the Bayfront Park stop. And that's where I met the creatives who made Biscayne Green happen. We're here to talk about the Downtown Development Authority, this amazing project that took place earlier in 2017 called Biscayne Green. called This Game Green, and it transformed the streetscape into a park for a month. And I just, I was so impressed with what everyone did to pull that off, and how beautifully it worked, and how people flocked there. So why don't we just introduce everyone who's here with us today. Sure. Sure. I'm Tony Garcia, principal of Street Plants Collaborative. We're the designers of the park. Uh, Cheryl Muriente, Project Director for Street Plans. I'm Fabian de la Espriela with the Miami Downtown Development Authority, and uh, I was the project manager for the Biscayne Green temporary um, public space installation. So what happened to the shade we thought we had? <laughs> <laughs> Comes and goes. Um, I'm Paula Bunster. I'm the Director of Storytelling at Prism Creative Group, and we were head of marketing, storytelling, community outreach, and event programming. All I could say is, wow, what an achievement. Did, what did you think? How did it feel to see it actually happen and be so embraced? So it was a, a great experience. Uh, it, it took nine months. It was a baby almost. It took nine months in the making. Um, and, and one of the first things, you know, there was a vision and, of course, the, the Knight Foundation and the Miami Foundation were great partners in order to make this happen uh, because through the Knight Cities Challenge, we were able to get the, uh, most of the funding to make this project a reality. And so after we were uh, awarded the, the, the grant, we started turning wheels and, and thinking about what we wanted to do, how much we wanted to accomplish. Um, and, and so we looked within our community to bring together the best partners that we could we could have to execute this project we knew that we had a timeline we wanted to for the for the event to be during a time where people would feel comfortable being outside so for us it was very clear that it needed to be january or february to avoid uh um, bad weather as well so uh, we had to lock in with with uh the uh, Miami Parking Authority, which they own the parking lots on, on Biscayne Boulevard. So we had to coordinate many pieces and parts with our partner agencies, City of Miami, Miami-Dade County, uh, Florida Department of Transportation, uh, and the Miami Parking Authority. And so we were able to bring together the team. Um, we, we brought a, a landscape architect to help us flush some of the, of the design concepts. We brought together Prism, who we knew they would be able to put together good names and, and good production for our events, what we wanted to accomplish. And then with Street Plans, we knew that we would get a great execution of that vision. And so we, through the months, we brought the, the, the team together. We started flushing concepts uh, in terms of how the space would look like. Um, and then we brought in the component of uh, 
what we wanted there to happen in terms of music of you know who do we engage the puppy brunch um friday uh, uh music festival uh, a food uh a taste of downtown so we had things that we knew we wanted to 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 take place during this month-long intervention and uh and then we had to just work through the details and and like i like i said it took nine months to to get there and then we only had four or five days to actually make it happen and so we started on january 2nd and we started actually painting the floor and bringing every piece together and so it it it, it was a lot of uh, tedious work of us being on the ground um and and also getting the help from some of uh, people that chose to volunteer to the project um, and that's how by by friday that week uh, we were able to uh, host a press conference and and have a reveal of of what we had created which was a, a full park um, of about 75,000 square feet tell me about prism how you got involved this is the kind of project that we really love sinking our teeth into because it doesn't just show you know, it's not just a one-off event. It doesn't just show, like, one specific side of Miami. It, it creates actual impact and a long-lasting change in con- consciousness, a shift in, in vitality of downtown. You know, it was one of the first times in a long time where the mainland pedestrians could feel like they were being prioritized over cars. It was something that, at, for residents of downtown, there was this experience of feeling, you know, a part of a neighborhood, something that was a connector to fellow residents, people they hadn't met, businesses they might not have walked into and now they could taste. Um, So it was just this great coming together of a lot of things and that's the kind of projects we, that make our hearts soar. We helped create this programming that had live music on Fridays and wellness on the morning on Saturdays and then another big event Saturday night Sundays were the movie nights and then during the week we had like open coffee hours with free Wi-Fi and food trucks, gatherings on Tuesdays it really felt like those kinds of, like Las Ramblas in, in Barcelona or Embarcadero in San Francisco, where there's the community is so used to having this thing as a part of their city that there are things happening all the time. But because this is one of the first times this happened, we did have to kind of put all of our efforts into it to make sure that it was really blown out of the water. So we worked with community partners like O Cinema was our film partner. Um, you know, we, we, you know we, we worked with different artists that were local, um, Sony Music Latin, some of their artists. We created these kind of bridges with different organizations in Miami. We brought the Art Center to do flamenco. So really to just elevate the culture and then also just tie it all together in a way that did hit it out of the park. I mean, almost 18,000 people walking through the space in just 20 days is, is a huge win for Miami. The way you staged as designers, the spaces that you walk through and the experiences that you had of play and stillness and loudness and art. I think that was really important. The genesis of this project is um, a project that we did as volunteers almost three years ago called Bayfront Parkway, which was a prototype of what we did in Biscayne Green, just using one of those lots for one week and doing a similar project where we just laid out sod. And so... Um, and that project is, was itself an iteration of something called Parking Day. We did the first Parking Day in Miami back in 2010, and I had a friend say, you know, this is great, but why don't we do something that will lead to something more long-lasting? Let's look at the DDA's got this plan to turn Biscayne Boulevard into a public space. Let's look at that. And so that was version, you know, 1.0 of Biscayne Green. Fast forward to, you know, this second version, Fabian got a, a large grant from... Knight Foundation and from others to put this on over two blocks or actually three blocks for a month. So there's an iterative quality to the project that we hope will lead to something longer lasting. And the idea behind the design of the spaces was to look at all those types of programming and uses that you would have in a public space. So from a doggy park to uh, uh, we had a, a fire pit for doing marshmallow, you know, kids playground. Um, open, unprogrammed open space, and then a hardscape. So you got a, a taste for all these different examples of what a public space should look like. Not that this is going to be the exact version of what happens here. And part of 
part of the methodology. It's called tactical urbanism, and it's about short-term action for long-term change. The idea is that with every iteration that you do, you leave something behind that improves the space. It's not just about the, the transitory quality of what we did that month. It's about what we left behind. So when we go walk through that space now, we see that the pavement that was previously just a blacktop parking lot is now painted as, you know, with this decorative motif of waves. Um, and the columns have been all been... De- it's still there. It's still there. Um, so some of it is that's fading. What you left behind that's right. The actual, the that's right. The that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And then the improvements to the metro rail. That's the first time in Dade County that Miami-Dade Transit has allowed any sort of decoration on its on the metro rail infrastructure, the metro mover infrastructure. So we were able to install a mural at the metro mover station that it still remains. And then the uh, we were able to wrap the columns under the, the metro mover with, um, with wraps, uh, which are from uh, artists from the community. So each one of the 18 or 20 columns that, that are there are featuring a, a local artist. And they're still wrapped. They, they right. are still wrapped, yes. Yes, and I want to I want to highlight one one point that, that Tony mentioned. It's that this long term vision of, of of the DDA to redesign and transform Biscayne Boulevard to be a pedestrian promenade. And this has been in the plans since uh, 2009, and there's been some steps taken. But but this event in January was the first time that uh, that transformation was was uh, um, was visible, and people were able to experience for the first time. And so that was a big aha uh-huh for a lot of people as to what that could be. And so this Biscayne Green vision, it's not only about the transformation of, the, of that space into a, a public open space, but it's also about the transportation component of what Biscayne Boulevard as a thoroughfare could become. Because not only did we do a, a temporary park, but we also touched on the, 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 the road itself. I mean, we were able to create a, a buffer of on-street parking on on the southbound side of, of, the, base of the boulevard. And we also created a um, shared uh, bike lane uh, along the other travel lane next to the sidewalk um, as a, and a bus-only lane as well. So we were able to, to incorporate those elements into the overall project, which they were a demonstration, but it was a first step into thinking, you know, mobility, it's part of what this transformation is about. Right. And because it worked, it didn't cause a bottleneck. There weren't people pissed off because of what was going on there. It seemed to be a full-on embrace, which is what I loved. Yeah, I think talking to that and implementing the project, um, what was interesting is when we got there the days before actual building it out, um, there's a lot of people that park there. And the first day, they're like, what's going on? Why can't we park here? Where did you take my parking? away and things like that. Where did you take my car? Yeah, where's my car? (laughs) Or that was the worst case scenario. (laughs) Oh, did somebody lose their car? Some people Uh, got towed, yes. Some people got towed, unfortunately. But it was their fault for not reading the signs. (laughs) Exactly, it was very clear. It's happened to all of us, hasn't it? But what's really interesting is like you fast forward 28 days later and then people are coming downstairs when we were cleaning up and saying, where are you taking my doggy park away? Why are you taking out my kids' playground away? And, you know, they couldn't they even couldn't remember believe. that there was a parking s- spaces down there before. And they couldn't believe that they, we were tearing it down right. after yeah. 20 days. They were like, no, 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 don't take it away. Make it permanent. They wanted to, for, for this to be, to stay, basically. That's yeah. what I was wondering. The response was, this is, this is going to be here, right? This isn't yeah. just a flash. And, but as we spoke a couple of weeks ago, you never intended for it to go on that it was just an example of right. what could take place and you're hoping to generate other activities and other spaces in downtown. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, an important part was was that um, using this kind of unconventional space to do these things that should happen on a regular basis. And it's so true. You know, we, we have people who still ask us about Biscayne Green like eight months later, you know, and like we have to explain like, no, it was a pop-up. It was always a pop-up. But that's a great way to get people really on board with this kind of project, which like, you know, Cheryl uh, Cheryl and Fabian kind of touched up on it. But like, you know, some people would get upset that their lives get kind of changed for a little bit, a, a different parking spot, a different place to leave your car. 
but it, the end goal is something that benefits everyone and eventually everyone totally was like completely a fan of it you know like residents would tell us they would come up to us they would respond to our blog posts or our newsletters or social posts and they would tell us like finally i feel like i'm a part of a neighborhood you know finally i'm feeling like i can i can really experience what miami has to offer culturally you know even just aesthetically um you know a, a big part of the making of the the um, the pod that had the dog park and the kids um play area you know they work with a local makerspace moonlighter makerspace so even the partners that were brought on to, to physically build these things it was such great exposure for them but even they were like wholeheartedly invested in this kind of project you know like these are people that like we would be remiss not to include again just because like we kind of felt like a family because we were doing something really it was one of the first times that people in downtown in a long time felt the sense of community and everyone says that word it's a buzzword nowadays There was a community. There was a place to go get your food at night. There was a place to go listen to music. There was a place to go get food for lunch. And it was just, like, always there. And people get used to that kind of way of life, you know? So no matter how disruptive it was for, like, the first three days when people weren't used to it, after, you know, a week, everyone was... It felt like it should have always been there. And people are excited to know that there's a potential for it to be there forever. The reasoning for this things happening in downtown it's that the downtown has more than doubled its population since early 2000s so downtown is now a neighborhood of about 90,000 people and when so many people start living in, in the same area really they need these spaces to breathe um, and in our city has been designed and built uh, mostly for cars um, it's it's not very welcoming and there's definitely a barrier effect in in our roads and that's part of what this project wanted to elevate that conversation about that barrier effect and how through these interventions and we can soften up sp spaces and make them for people. So, and that was the message of, of this project. I know that this effort, Biscayne Green, has been recognized locally and internationally. Yes, we, we were awarded the Florida ASLA, which is the American... Society, uh, of, Society of Landscape Architects, uh, and we were awarded in June the Award of Excellence, and in September um, in Canada we were, are going to be awarded with the IDA Award of Excellence, which is the International Downtown Association as well, under public space category. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Super. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing this adventure with us. I know that people that experienced it are going to be glad to hear some news I know it's in the news news, but, you know, to hear it, hear the voices, the creative energy behind this. It's important to keep it alive, so thank you as well. Uh, this, is, this is what will propel and keep this moving forward. So it's great to have people continue to talk about it and remember what, what we were able to accomplish there. Um, yeah, this is, this is how change happens. Good morning. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Today's program is about Miami, specifically downtown Miami, as a cultural site and the genesis of some really radical ideas, uh, the history of Miami, the present tense is all just fascinating for me, and I couldn't wait to bring you the next voice that you'll hear, who is our studio guest, Rina Carvajal. She is the executive director and chief curator of the Museum of Art and Design at Miami-Dade College. She curates in modern and contemporary art from Latin America, and she's very interested in public art and commissions projects. Those are just some of her interests, as I just heard. So no limitations for this woman. Welcome to the studio, Rina. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for having me here. Absolutely. You're a great discovery. We've been trying to meet each other for over a year. <laughs> so here we are. Yes. And I'm very happy to tell you more about her. I mean, she's had a 
big jobs in curating and directing institutions uh, in Rio, in Sao Paulo, in Brazil, the Miami Art Museum, that's now the Perez, the, Com- the Contemporary Arts and Commission Program of Vizcaya Museum and Gardens, and Rutgers University, the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles. You can go on and on. But she has decided to be here with us in Miami. Thank you. <laughs> it's a wonderful place to be. I'm so excited to tell our guests, our listeners rather, about what you're up to. Today, Rena's here especially for a conversation about a new concept for the museum that she directs. And it involves six months of cross-disciplinary performance, art, film, video screenings, readings, talks, and workshops. And it goes under the title of Living Together. And this is a project that exists mostly outside museum walls. Rena, tell me what motivates that for your practice right now. Well, the museum has repositioned itself. It has a new mission, uh, pair in a certain way with the mission of the college, with its wonderful mission, which is the city and the community is a classroom. So for us now, uh, the museum will be a platform of city collaborations and uh, cultural action at the intersection of art, design, and other disciplines. So in this context, and thinking on the city, which is a big area of interest to me, um, we committed to do a program called the Museum Without Boundaries, which will be happening all throughout our, our programming, even when the museum is open and we have exhibitions in the building. So we will still be programming many things in the, in the communities in Miami. So I guess it would be good to point out that the entire Freedom Tower right now is under reconstruction, renovation. So that's why the museum does not have programming in the space. But this is just a moment to take advantage of this opportunity to create a new identity for how the museum operates in the world. And I think it's important to talk for a minute about the context that this museum is in, the city of Miami. Yeah, of course. Well, this is also an iconic, the museum is an iconic building with a lot of history about Miami. History about, you know, it was the main newspaper of Miami for 55 years, and then it was a refugee center for Cubans after Fidel took over. And uh, it has been a center of a lot of cultural production in the city because it hosts not only the museum, but the Miami Film Festival, MDC Live Arts, uh, the book fair. So it's the Department of Culture of the powerhouse that is Miami Day College. It's fantastic. And we're we're a portal to South America. We're a, a frontier city. I saw that as a descriptive word, and I love that. We're uh, at the crossroads of the Americas and the Caribbean. And Miami-Dade College itself has one of the largest international student bodies represented by over 190 nationalities. That's so true. It's, it's an international setting for this. Let's talk about the theme, living together. What does that mean? What are you going for with this? Well, thinking about the present moment where there is so much emphasis on borders, segregation, separation by race, by religion. We thought about this very carefully and thought that we need to help to make an an environment for Miami that's really inclusive and humanizing and that instead of closing doors, opens doors and connects people. So the artists that are invited to participate in this six months program all over the city, they're all in their own way discussing the issues that are pertinent to the Living Together program. And you have a colleague that is curating the film series. Yes, yes. This is a very old collaborator with me, Constancia Contasis, and she's also a media advisor for us, so she works also with us in the the museum as an advisor in issues of film and programming, and uh, Dia curated an, an, amaze, an amazing program that's right now happening at the Tower Cinema, and the cost for cinema is free. 
Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention is that most of the events are free, with the exception of very few. And we're bringing great artists to Miami. I saw that. I'm so excited about this. I have to be sure I get there early because <laughs> there is so much great performance coming your way. People get ready for the list we're going to share with you. The uh, films, as she said, were are going to be shown at the Tower Theater and the University of Miami, and they're already that's already started. Yes. and so have the performances. The, the the big body of the performance program will really be in January, February, March, and April. So it's almost every weekend. Yeah. Well, let's talk just for a second about the films because they include dramas and comedies and documentaries, like one that I watched the trailer and I just couldn't, it was so heart-wrenching to watch it that I decided I couldn't share it today, which is Who Streets, Mm -hmm. which is by filmmakers Sabah Folayan and Damon Davis. And it's account, an account of the Ferguson uprising as told by the people that lived it. The filmmakers look at how the killing of 18-year-old Michael Brown inspired a community to fight back and sparked the global Black Lives Matter movement. And another one that touched my heart is a question, a film with a question too, which is by director Mark Silver, who traces an attempt to identify the human remains found in the Arizona Sonora Desert that underscores the plight of illegal immigrants attempting to enter the United States. These people, as much as they are invisible in life, they're invisible in death. It's very hard to identify them. Nobody's out there searching for them. Diane Crystal was definitely an atypical case. Who's this person? We don't have any report of somebody who was missing that had those tattoos. We're trying to see if somebody knows this person and try to ID them. En vida era considerado invisible, un ilegal. Ahora en la muerte es un misterio por resolver. poder entender la dimensión de los peligros que enfrentó. Solo puedo tratar de recorrer sus pasos. People sneaking across the border. To my mind, the problem is all economic. The American capitalist economy needs blue-collar labor. For me, it's very frustrating knowing that somebody had a dream, but they ended up being a number, a statistic. That's heart-wrenching to me. And I love this idea that we're talking about what you're doing as removing walls, not thinking about borders, bringing art to the people in different ways, collaborating, just being part of the fabric of the city. Let's move on to talk about the performance series. This is an amazing series that Rena has organized, and it begins with a performance in January of Karen Fenley, The Unicorn Gratitude Mystery. And I've worked with Karen Fenley when I was curating in Atlanta. She did a performance called George and Martha. This one is coming to the Miami Light Project. There's another one, an artist from Brazil, Eleonora Fabian. Tell me about what she's going to do for Miami. Eleonora is performing in different neighborhoods of Miami. So she will be in Hialeah, downtown Miami, Miami Beach, Opaloca. She will spend several days uh, sitting and inviting people in the streets to have a conversation. The, the first project is called I Will Have a Conversation About Any Subject. And she could do this in Spanish or in English. And that uh, she would have some chairs and invite the passersbys pass, to have a conversation with her. And one of the ideas behind uh, this invitation to Eleonora when I saw that performance of hers is my interest in public space and in activating a more 
civic space for people in Miami where there is such a little opportunity to exchange with people in the streets. And uh, Eleonora will spend four, five, six hours in each neighborhood. All these performances, you'll be able to find, I'm sure they'll be posting a lot about them, but they also have a special website for this. Yeah, of course, they will all be posted at our website, MDC Moat, uh, but it also will be on Facebook, social media, every every outlet you can imagine. Right. Well, this one sound that I want to share with you next is Samora Penderhues, who created the Transformation Suite, and he's going to bring us a project on in February that combines music, theater, and poetry in a one-hour composition in five movements. And Samora is a world-renowned pianist and composer. This young it's guy... only 25 years 25 old. 25 years old. He's played at the White House. He's played at the Blue Note. He's played at MoMA, Sundance, Monterey Jazz Festival, Carnegie Hall, and collaborated with all kinds of international musicians. And he spent the past five years working on this transformation suite. And it's a composition that connects contemporary issues such as prison, the prison industrial complex, the Black Lives Lives Matter movement, and the history of revolutionary movements of (laughs) color. So it intends to foster a dialogue, and some of that dialogue you'll hear in the performance itself. So we'll let you hear that now. The sun slapped me last night, rippled me to the edge of earth, where angels fly with broken wings and love with shattered hearts. Moonwalk in their minds the sounds of teardrops beating Michael and Marley, Mayfield and Marvin. Rest in peace. What's going on? We can't teach soul like that. You can't get this funk not to stink. So you just better breathe deep. Rock your head. Move your hips. Find God in the drum, revolution in the bass, and make freedom look sexy tonight. The sun slapped me last night, rippled me to the edge of earth, where angels resurrect newspaper clippings with God in the time before time. When halos shine through clouds like north stars to freedom. Guided by the sound of flesh cutting through air. Listening to the words of ancestors beating against our skin. Using scars on backs as maps, we dream of better places. Where history remembers our name and the future's born in our favor. So one time for the brothers in schools challenging rules for better tomorrows. Fighting traditions and yesterdays, serpent tongues and false smiles. You are evolution in tears and sweat. You are everything they read about but are too afraid to see. The beating at the protest man behind bars, the pain of the verdict after the cops kill a brother, or stick him with a plunger. So ask your questions, demand your answers, do not let them fade your soul. Just too hot to believe God. 
there. This is Kathy Bird. We're back with you after sharing some of the gorgeous sound of Samora Penderhughes, who will be coming to us in February, and I'll be there. It's gorgeous. I just want to mention, as you're hearing some amazing names, too, already, Carrie Mae Weems will be here performing. William Kentridge will be bringing a project here. Ana Maria Maiolino will be bringing a live performance and talk here that is looks amazing. And Tino Segal. I mean, ace lineup here, Rena. <laughs> yeah. Very good. But we're going to close with an artist that lives part-time in Miami, part-time in Barcelona. Yeah. And he's a friend of mine, too, so I was really happy to see his name. Anthony Miralda will be bringing the Magic Banquet in February to Exile Books' new storefront. Yeah, there are collaborators. in the, We are collaborating with many organizations all throughout the city for this program. Yes, and he's the founder of the Food Museum in Barcelona. I actually have a podcast episode with him and his wife, Monse, on Fresh Art International, so you should look that up. But he participated in Faena District's processional last year with a global banquet. And he will be bringing a food performance that celebrates the city's cultural heritage by tracing the history of Magi, the bouillon cube. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's going to be pretty funny. Rena, thank you for sharing this teaser for what's coming up. Very excited, and we'll continue to have an opportunity on the show to introduce some of these people when they're in town. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Yes. So this is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird, and we are live streaming on Jolt Radio in Miami, Florida. This was an amazing set of conversations about cultural interventions in downtown Miami, from sacred sites created by prehistoric tribes to the urban design of a pop-up park space and a contemporary art museum that is operating outside its walls. There is a lot going on in the heart of our city. If you like what you're hearing, please let us know at Fresh Art INTL or at Jolt Radio. I want you to know that listeners, you can go online to find out more about Fresh Art International and how to support this Art Talk radio show on freshartinternational.com. You'll find more than 100 Fresh Art experiences anywhere you go for podcasts. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned. Join us every week for Contemporary Art Talk.